Uh, good evening, everybody. This is Jim Hoffman from EMS Office Hours, and I am your host tonight, and of course, every Wednesday night, 7 p.m. Eastern Time. Uh, thanks for joining me this evening. Uh, Going to have hopefully a couple of guests popping in into the uh, call line and hopefully some chatting going on. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, changes in uh, EMS protocols and particularly the New York City REMAC protocol has, protocols have some changes coming up um, and it's kind of a broad topic so what I'm going to try to do is just focus on one or two in particular and, and mainly the, the, uh, the process of them taking out morphine for the chest pain protocol uh, based on some studies and uh, maybe get some feedback as to why they, you know, the thought process behind them removing that from the protocol uh, altogether. Um, before I do that, I do want to mention just two quick things. One is, uh, is regarding the New York City REMAC. If you are a REMAC medic or a student and you're going to be taking the, the exam coming up on this Sunday on the 20th, I'm doing a uh, uh, EMS uh, REMAC uh, study group uh, webinar. Um, you can get the information on that at uh, nycremac.com and sign up for that webcast and uh, kind of an informal group we're going to be having there and little study uh, tips and, and information and try to help some people out with some difficulties they feel they're having with that exam. So stop by there if you're interested. If you know somebody's going to be taking the exam, spread the word and uh, let them know that that's happening. The other thing is um, over at the EMS Educast, uh, emseducast.com, uh, the last uh, session they had uh, was with Buck Ferris, and Buck Ferris actually uh, is an EMS educator, and uh, he actually did a few uh, webinars with us over at EMS Bootcamp on medical math and uh, autonomic nervous system. Um, but he's actually working in organ and tissue procurement right now for a organ donation uh, organization, and he really went into you know the ins and outs of that, and and how he got into that that line of work, and uh, very very interesting uh, podcast that they did on that. And I was listening to the podcast, and I'll tell you, you know, the one thing that was I was thinking about was a, a podcast that we did a few weeks ago about EMS career paths and where you can go, and this really kind of points out that you're not tied into doing just EMS. Uh, once you're an EMS, you know, provider. There's other ways you can go that kind of tie into it, that kind of go hand in hand. And one of those things is something like this. He mentioned how EMS providers are very well suited for this line of work because they know how ERs operate and know about patients and patient care, and they have that customer service level kind of built in there. So, um, you know, great podcast. Uh, Buck has a, a zone blog actually. It's at gomerville.com. Um, but uh, listen to the podcast. It's about an hour long, but I think well worth it. Uh, really great insight there. And uh, I'll put links to uh, the, the podcast and also to uh, Buck's um, uh, blog as well at gomerville.com below in the show notes uh, for uh, that uh, you know, this uh, this podcast. So check those things out. Really great great information and, and I think a real eye opener. A little bit too, as far as the uh, the broader spectrum of uh, organ donation and tissue uh, procurement. So I want to bring in a couple of callers here that we have online. Uh, the main uh, I have Mark online here. Mark, uh, Mark, are you with us? Yes, I am. All right, Mark. Thanks for joining us tonight. Um, and I, you know, Mark, just just give people a quick overview of, of where you're coming from. Uh, and what you're about uh, as far as uh, tonight's topic about the protocol changes and morphine uh, removal in particular? 
Sure, sure. I'm probably unique than most of the listeners here. Um, I'm, by profession, I'm a pharmacist, and I um, do teach pharmacology, and I'm uh, now getting really entrenched. Uh, I'm just uh, launching my uh, my website that's going to be addressing a lot of different topics in that, but I am member of the New York City Ramsco Protocol Committee, and um, I, I must have to say this little disclaimer that, you know, anything I'm saying is really uh, more or less, you know, not necessarily representing the opinions of them, but I could tell you a little bit about some of the um, thought processes and how we go about um, the premises on some of the things in terms of uh, changes and paradigm shifts and how protocols are doing it. And I'm probably unique in that not too many REMAC and REM schools throughout the country really have a pharmacist. So New York City is kind of progressive in that way. And, uh, you know, I'm working on a lot of in terms of enhancing the medication formulary and try to give a little different perspective of how things are going. And I'm looking forward in my website from getting a lot of um, contribution from medics as well as EMTs in terms of what things they like me to address and contemporary um, type of topics. Um, I'm also very... Uh, savvy in terms of the EMS world, so I'm also ATLS, PALS, GEMS, and um, PHTLS certified, but uh, yet not able to do a an EMT course, so I'm hoping to try to be able to do that just for voluntary purposes. Uh, you know, it, it's important, though, too, like with with pharmacology, something a lot of times it gets glossed over, and, and uh, I think it's an important topic that uh, a lot of EMS providers really need to kind of take into consideration and pay a little bit more attention to. Um, I also have Josh on the line, too, from Watton. He's been doing this the past few weeks. Josh, thanks for coming in tonight. Hey, Jim. How are you doing? Thanks for having me. Hey, Mark. Thanks. thanks Hi, for joining Josh. Us. How are you? So what do you guys think? Mark, you know, I was noticing, uh, reading some of the, the potential updates for the New York City Remac, and, again, you know, this isn't an official point of view for Remac, like Mark said. This is kind of his insight. Uh, on what's going on and what he feels is some of the thought process behind it. It's not an official, you know, stance from Remac or Remsco. So I just want to go ahead and kind of reiterate that a little bit. But Mark, I, I, you know, looking at some of the protocol changes, and one that kind of stands out was the morphine uh, removal in the chest pain protocol. Now, uh, this I, I think you had sent me a link uh, on this and how it's uh, based on a, uh, a study that was done, I think, in uh, nine, uh, 2005. The Crusade uh, study, is that, is that correct? Is that what they're primarily basing this on? Uh, yeah, that's one of the uh, studies that, uh, which is the can rapid risk stratification of unstable angina patient suppressed adverse outcomes. And right. it's, uh, it goes on <laughs> and on with early implementations, and that's why they came up with an acronym. Uh, yeah. But um, before I go into that, it, it's important that, you know, I know you had an earlier podcast about the white paper in terms of evidence-based medicines, a lot of the decisions that are made in the protocol, you know, and we are a cross-mix of, uh, of, you know, physicians. Um, a, good, a good representation is from, from FIDNI, the Fire Department of New York, because it probably about 60, 65% of them is, is run, um, you know, ALS and BLS, which, you know, is, you know, we, we address both, and including CFR protocols, too, are also in the process of being reviewed. But nothing is done unilaterally, and we try to look at things um, based on, again, evidence base. 
Um, and also some of the things based on uh, what's really going out in the field. I mean, I could give you an example, like um, um, with oxygen. You know, uh, we I think we recently changed, uh, you know, no longer under or over certain respiratory rates. If anybody, if they uh, EMT or a medic perceives the patients in some type of distress, go ahead and give oxygen. It was probably happening anyhow. And we discussed it, and it's just a lot of common sense. So there was a lot of things, for example, and me from a pharmaceutical perspective, noticed that the ipatromium, uh, which is used by nebulizer, um, they had it listed as uh, soybean and nuts to be a contraindication. And I was able to present to them that that's not really true, because that's only the handheld nebulizer, which is not used on any of the buses. Um, so there's a lot of things, you know, sometimes um, we make recommendations that are just consideration that are agency-specific, like the BPAP for the pulmonary edema, because there's cost and logistics involved in it, so we leave it up to the agencies to see what they do. But there's a whole process. The protocol committee goes to the medical standards committee, goes to REMS, goes, goes to REMAC. It goes to a public notice where anybody, um, even lay people, could make any type of uh, comment about it. And we sit down, and then we bring it back to the committees, and we address it. Then it goes to the state, and then the state, uh, CMAC and SEMSCO, has to finally approve it. A uh, classic example where something took a very long time is the therapeutic hypothermia. So a lot of things are not exactly rocket scientists. Some of them are just, you know, studies that are out there. And I, you know, the membership is pretty broad, and I'm, you know, about going on two years with my edition. And uh, we have EMTs, we have uh, doctors, and we have medics. And, uh, you know, we all try to come up and try to play devil's advocate in terms of how the protocols are and see how they work. and. Um, give enough time to do the training and uh, give out um, the uh, didactic material and the slides for doing that. Hey, Mark, I don't want to really get off uh, subject because I know Jim really wanted to focus a lot of this on protocol changes revolving around uh, the morphine, but the ipatrobium bromide, it sounds, that's, uh, could you expand on that just a little bit? Why is it uh, a danger for peanut allergies in the inhaled uh, nebulizer and not in the uh, uh, in handheld nebulizer and not in the uh, method that we uh, the nebulized treatments that we use. It, it has to do with the preservative that's um, that's in actually inside the uh, handheld one, uh, which is the uh, HFA formulations. Because as you may or may not know. Uh, things like um, the albuterol, the ventolins, and all that. Um, there's a legislature went on, um, I think, last year, where, or maybe it been two years, where they had to be reformulated because it had um, propellants that were uh, affecting the ozone layer. So basically that ingredient, which I don't recall off the top of my head, had something that apparently could uh, cause problems to patients that... Um, are allergic to soybean and nuts. So, and and what, apparently, whoever wrote the protocol just looked at ipatromium and didn't look really in depth. So there's a lot of urban legends, and we're in the process of looking over a lot of things to maybe even address the formats of how the protocols look and algorithms. And, you know, that's, again, just what I'm thinking about in, you know, talks, but whether it's actually going to happen or not, 
again, you know, I'm not quite sure about that. I mean, I hope I answered Well, that's great. I mean, that takes a realist view. I mean, we're not just looking, and uh, it takes a little bit of the cookbook out of it as well. Yeah, it's so. easier for the practice in medics, uh, the medics, rather, and also for, for studying purposes, too, if it's an algorithm. So, uh, um, you know, that's something. But right now, uh, things are a little bit delayed uh, because there's a state budget problem, and CMAC and Simsco have to sit down and approve a lot of these things. So right now, all these things and what we're specifically going to be focusing on tonight is, um, you know, just proposed, and it's waiting for state approval to come back, and uh, then um, uh, it's, I think it's targeted uh, for for some type of April to be released, and I guess the agencies, they'll make a decision when it's actually going to be implemented um, yeah, I saw, know, sometime in the second quarter. Yeah, I saw, I saw on the, the, the newsletter from REMAC, for this month, they're targeting July for it to be yeah. implemented and then begin the exams and a lot of good stuff, you know, but they always have that, you know, it still has to get out there and, like you said, approved and everybody in service and a lot of good stuff going on. You know, even though you're off, a little, off topic a little bit about, you know, the other drugs, and it still kind of focuses, again, around what we're talking about, which is, you know, the thought process behind it. You know, some people think they just change it because they're lazy, they don't trust the medics or... You know, they don't trust the EMTs and, or the transport time is too short or, or things like that. Um, but a lot of times, like you said, Mark, it, it goes based on studies and, and some evidence-based information. Now, this study for the morphine is, you know, looking online about it uh, and do, doing some research before the show, I, I see that there's a lot of contraindications to that. Some people agree with it. Some people think, think it's too broad of a study, that it's not really... Uh, targeting STEMI elevation is more for unstable angina and for non-STEMI uh, patients that the, the, the data was collected from a database uh, of, of people rather than uh, uh, like a, a random type, you know, trial type thing. Um, so, you know, it, it, even though it's kind of evidence-based, the, the thought process behind it, there's still, I think, some... I guess disagreement going on as to whether or not this is something that we should be doing uh, for this type of a protocol, and I wonder if it if part of it does have to do with the fact that, like in New York City, you don't really have that that high of a transport time to ERs, and that you know you can give you know four nitroglycerins, you can give the aspirin up front. By the time you're doing all that, you're going to be at the hospital anyway before you get through your those basic standing orders before you even get to morphine. Yeah. That, that basically was a lot of the deliberation because, you know, um, you hit it right on the head in terms of the transport time. And, uh, you know, we also were considering uh, the fact that um, if we were able to ever get right now, uh, the state has not given any approval to use things that has less hemodynamic effects in terms of uh, pain management um, because that has some of the beneficial effects of morphine, and that's why we kind of added another dose of, uh, usually the standard, which everybody knows, is nitro sublingual, um, you know, every five minutes times three. We added another dose of, of nitro in there, uh, but uh, we were hoping, or we're actually hoping someday that, um, and it's a speculation, of fentanyl, uh, but the state has some problems of having that as a stand in order for some reason. I have no idea. But yet, ket ketamine, which is uh, a great drug, um, the state has no problem with that. But um, the membership is 
you know, I'm not pushing for it, but our membership, at least here in the city, doesn't use it. But I think um, upstate, they, they, they do use it. And I was talking um, with the rogue medic. I think he's going to be writing some things in the future, kind to point in that direction. Um, and he thinks it's a very good drug, but we didn't get a lot of time really to elaborate on what was what about Mark, on that. Mark, what about yeah. anti-anxiolytics uh, like diazepam? Uh, it's never been discussed in the process. I mean, one one definitely could uh, uh, presume that there's a lot of anxiety that is occurring on, and you know, the morphine would have relaxed the patient. But I suppose as time goes on, if if that's something that medics are reporting back, um, that, that 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 is a problem contributing, obviously, to um, you know the overall process of increasing. Anxiety and the catecholamines, which you know will contribute to ischemia, um, that could be a consideration, you know, and that's something that's always open because that's another process too. Many times we get people who email in um, to uh, Marie Diglio and they and Marie will come and say, "This is a suggestion for killing somebody," and that's another methodology and how uh, we get recommendations and we'll sit down and we'll we'll deliberate it and discuss it. Um, just like anybody would because, you know, we kind of try to oversee and make the protocols and what the standards are and hopefully raise the bar. Um, some of them just come from the fire department and it's what their wish list is and we try to sit down and see is that good for not only them but is it good for the other 45% of the participating voluntary agencies uh, to do that. But that's uh, something definitely worth uh, thinking about. Um, because of the anxiety and the whole uh, physiological effect and how it impacts uh, the ischemia and the whole process. Yeah, I mean, I remember talking to a cardiologist after he we brought in a, um, uh, a an acute chest pain, and um, he had uh, ordered uh, Valium for the for the patient, and I was I asked him why not morphine, and his answer although much more complex than this conversation could go, was basically that the uh, effects of morphine were, um, were not as pronounced in the, case, in the case of most of his patients as the effects of diazepam because he found that reducing the anxiety had a greater effect on the outcome of the patient. And it seemed to be more benign and better tolerated. But you know, this goes way beyond you know, sort of my pay scale. Uh, I like to say, as far as you know, the actual effects that it has on a patient, or if it should be used in uh, right, protocol. Right, right. Also, in the actual time, you know, a lot of it. You know, we got statistics in terms of what is the actual time that, you know, I think what Jim was talking about. You know, opposed to where maybe you know him or other. Um, people who might be in a little more rural areas, you know, what the, and I don't know off the top of my head, what the average uh, transport time and um, them transporting the uh, 12 leads and, and getting them, if, uh, you know, act obviously indicated to the steamy uh, receiving institutions. Um, but, um, you know, that's, you know, uh, we, we came up with that. Now, I don't know if... Um, Jim, did you come up with anything? I, I don't remember at one point of our conversations when we were talking about this at, over at REMAC, if anything of this was in the 2010 AHA guidelines.
Um, actually, uh, the AHA had the mention of the crusade study, which is what they're talking about, you know, why they're, I guess, you know, remove the morphine. Um, it's still in there. They, they they say that for patients with the unstable angina and the, the non-STEMI um, associated chest pain, um, that they, they they say to use morphine with caution. They moved it into a class. To a lower chamber. right. To a yeah, a, exactly. Yeah. So, so it's way, way down the list of what they want you to give for those types of patients. And they're really pushing the aspirin, um, really pushing the, you know, the nitroglycerin and, and identifying the STEMIs uh, more than jumping to the morphine. And they base it pretty much on this whole increased mortality that supposedly morphine has on patients uh, from that from that study. I mean, it's something like I think it's 29% um, uh, th that uh, get it within the first, first 24 hours or whatever. They have a, a higher um, mortality rate. It's like something like I think I'm trying to look at the percentages here. Um, I think it is. It says if they got it with with morphine and the nitroglycerin, um, that uh, the the mortality rate increased. It's like it's like another like percentage percentage and a half. It looks like. And and, and I think if I remember too that um, even um, within 30 days of the hospital stay, there was high morbidity and mortality too. If I remember correct from. In the study, and it's very concerning because I don't know what it is in statistics in New York City, but hospitalizations, at least nation, you know, within within the nation here, is it's probably maybe one and a half million Americans are hospitalized with probably the whole spectrum of steamy and non-steamy. And I know there's a lot of concerns, um, not from so much when I'm here from Remsco or Remac, but just you know, whether their patients are ruled in or ruled out because there's so much, um, I'm not want to say skill sets, or but sometimes there's just, you know, the way you're looking and sometimes there's other reasons why there's ST elevations and, you know, things beyond my scope of being it. And probably if you would talk to our cardiology expert over at 12 Lee, you know, Tom, you know, he's always presenting cases where things present like if it is, but it's not because there's only so many other things. And I read so many different uh, reports and stuff, so, you know, they're not sure. So maybe, you know, one of the reasons, too, is, you know, we're going to you know, go ahead and the transport that's going to be maybe 8 to 10 minutes, and we're going to get morphine, and morphine is, is a... Uh, you know, they say it, you know, and I know it as a pharmacist is not really that true, but one of the thought processes is a respiratory depressant, and right. you don't really want to do that because that's going to that's gonna increase to some of the ischemia because you need, you want to have oxygen, um, you know, and um, you're reducing blood pressure, and, um, and there's probably some other studies that, that probably were out there that maybe clarified it because you said that was a 2000 2005. 2005. Yeah, 2005 is when I can see when the uh, that crusade study was done, and then again, American Heart looks like they they pulled that out. You know, in 2010. Yeah, and that's the gold standard right now. So if they lowered it down, I would venture to say that a lot of it was done because of. And again, you know, I with time. Permitting for me, I, I attend the protocol committees, which was small, but I kind of alluded to you that we have other 
check and balances and nothing's done kind of unilaterally. Right. So this goes up to different levels where they kind of dissect it and, and go into more different details about it and ask more, uh, uh, you know, more inquisitive in terms of, you know, let's see a little bit more about that, which I'm not necessarily privy to. Um, and uh, I'm sure that probably also the fact that they lowered that level, the AAH guidelines, and the short transport time in this study has somewhat of some credence to it. And pharmacologically speaking, some of the actions that it does, and you're not really worried too much about it. And maybe um, if there's a change in terms of uh, the thought process with the state, I mean, politically, there's a new governor now. There's a new health commissioner. Fortunately, I don't know if anybody knows, I mean, Dr. Daines passed away at a very early age. I mean, he was the former commissioner. Um, I'm not saying whether it was him, but the health department was very harsh about giving uh, the liberty when we were doing the hypothermic, uh, therapeutic hypothermia uh, uh-huh. for, for shivering, because shivering is uh, very detrimental to the patients because it could actually cause the hypothalamus to uh, have a rebound effect and raise the temperatures to a very dangerous level and counteract the whole process of what we're doing. And fentanyl was the most logical thing over using midazolam. And we wanted to have a standing order so that we didn't have all the medics calling into medical control. And unfortunately, the state said, no, uh, you're not having it. So maybe sometime in the future, fentanyl has a better profile in terms of hemodynamics. Maybe that will be the drug, but maybe it's not even needed with the short transport time. And adding the extra nitroglycerin, if the patient is on the scale from 0 to 10, which we haven't spelled out. We gave the latitude um, to the medics, or if need be, it's EMTs that are dealing with, and they're going to be just dealing with the uh, oxygen and, uh, and the nitroglycerin and the aspirin, obviously. You know, I have a problem with the idea that things are just based on time. Because in in New York, yeah, the majority of our calls on a nice day, even a rainy day, are within that 10-minute time limit. But our protocols have to sort of cover us for our actions when we have a snow emergency or something else that's going on that doesn't allow us to get to the hospital in time. And now you're dealing with this patient and it's probably much more what Jim's used to, but now you're dealing with this patient for 20, 30 minutes, and we need something that we can, you know, enact and work with uh, for that period of time. Well, well, I agree with you wholeheartedly, and I know I brought this up um, via emails, and I know that um, there has been a lot of discussions about, uh, which I know we had a nice, very extensive uh, conversations about, uh, post-mortem um, of the storm and, and uh, all the trials and tribulations, but uh, uh, the respective committees within REMSCO are, are dealing co- collectively with all the different agencies and have participated in the city councils to discuss, um, you know, are these things should be done on an ad hoc basis or should there be protocols in place when they happen? Um, I apologize for not having the proposed protocol in front of me. I don't know if um, uh, if Jim could maybe take a quick, quick look at it if he's able to and see um, if there's any medical control options in terms of there is Pro- anything for this protocol that's being For the chest pain protocol? Yeah, yeah. No, there's uh, no. What goes on? 
Yeah, there's no um, there's no uh, medical control options in it right now. They just yeah. moved it. They aspirin up to be first, and uh, they put um, they again they took out the morphine and uh, and stuff like that, and they added the additional nitroglycerin. Um, yeah, I think that's the hallmark of it. But uh, yeah. you know, in terms of the other things, I mean, yes, uh, we need to be concerned in light of you know uh, you know Japan and and you know earthquakes popping up everywhere and yeah. and and all kinds of you know before you know it will be hurricane season and and, and, and yeah. we're always the epicenter of potential terrorism and uh well, you know, like drawing such a happy picture yeah yeah i, mean, I'm I, sorry I to say know. that but you know we discussed it sometimes you know but you know sometimes we we deal with so many things but and and plan in terms of disaster and, uh, you know, it's interesting, uh, Jim, when you're talking about different career niches for that's fantastic things for EMS personnel to get in that are, yeah. you know, non-traditional roles. You know but, what, Mark? Uh, that's on the side note. Yeah. Mark, I have, I have another caller online. I just want to bring them in in case they have sure, input. Sure, please do. Please we do. We've only got about another 15 minutes left, so I want to try to get maybe get some more feedback on what we're talking about. Um, yeah. Hi, who's who's calling in with us? Hey, this is Tim. I, hey, Tim. Uh, I, Messed up on the time on this, and oh, that's uh, all right. just not getting to get Skype to connect for me. Uh -huh. um, yeah, would, uh, uh, one of the things I saw about the um, study crusade was that nobody has followed up on it. You know, they finished up by saying this needs to be followed up with a uh, randomized study, uh, you know, with a prospective study, but. Nobody's done that. I looked through clinicaltrials.gov, and uh, there's nothing registered in there. So it doesn't look like we're going to see anything anytime soon, probably not before the next ACLS comes out. And um, yeah, the ACLS guidelines say it's a level 2B uh, recommendation there. So. Right. Yeah, I, I was looking as well. I, I saw a lot. Referring to the study, you know, other other people who are following it, uh, some some protocol, EMS protocols that I found, the taking morphine out. A lot of them have taken out the morphine. They've taken out more on the uh, the CHF uh, protocol with chest pain, and not necessarily the uh, uh, unstable angina or the chest pain. Um, they they seem to feel that that's you know more detrimental than than just taking out of the uh, the. The regular chest pain protocol that the patient has to be in CHF with with uh, chest pain before they you know remove the morphine out. So and I did read somewhere somebody mentioned that the, that's what the Crusade study revolved around was that it was more for for patients with with CHF and and uh, ACS. But I didn't I didn't see that. So I'm not sure if anyone here uh, saw it, that. It but I just saw ACS. Both. Yeah. Um, if you look at uh, where they broke it down by how many patients had uh, CHF, a minority of uh, the patients had CHF. Um, where is it? Uh, signs of CHF overall were 22.5%. In the no morphine group, it was 22.7%. And in the morphine group, 22.1%. So regardless of where the patients were it you know the chf patients were not the majority of them you know, right there were a bunch of things that 
raise some questions about the study, but um, you know the authors uh, did finish up by saying a prospective trial needs to be done rather than just saying let's take all of this out of uh, protocols. Right. But what do you think? Do you think it's something that's worth doing? Do you think it's, it's, it, it has uh, enough bearing to remove from a protocol, or do you think they should still do more studies first? Well, New York's got a problem with getting fentanyl used. Yeah. Uh, but I would rather use fentanyl. It does not have uh, the cardiac suppressive effects that um, morphine seems to. It doesn't cause the vasodilation that morphine seems to. Yeah, it doesn't have the histamine release. So uh, it seems like a much safer drug. Respiratory depression can be a problem with both. Depending upon whom you talk to, uh, fentanyl causes more respiratory depression or morphine causes more respiratory depression. People I've talked to who are anesthesiologists tend to lean toward fentanyl being uh, more of a respiratory depressant. But mm. we can easily manage that if we're assessing the patient. I was going to say, the exactly. Study yeah, the study looked at the first 24 hours of patient care if the patient received morphine. Um, that may reflect uses that are different from what EMS would be doing. And they were looking more at emergency department treatment than uh, pre-hospital treatment. So they weren't setting it up to look at uh, what EMS is doing. And Mark, you said that the, that there is a possibility it might be moving. That they might be putting fentanyl in in the, in the future, right? For uh, for that for the pain management. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I agree. I agree with Tim's uh, definitely pharmacologically speaking, and I have heard that same. Uh, I I can't get ever straight, even when I I look it up too in terms of the respiratory. But I agree. Um, in one sense, yes, we could we could deal with it. Uh, well, I, I mean, medics could deal with it, uh, but I guess the concern is how much could that contribute in terms to the ischemia of having the, you know, the hypoxia there and, and what is contri contribution. But um, in terms of our impasse in, in New York, it's, it's it was the state health department which was exhibited when, again, I'm rehashing because Tim's here. I don't, I don't know. Did you did you just join? Did you hear me talk about uh uh, the the part about uh, when we were going through the um, the hypothermic. Uh, uh, I just yeah got on. yeah. Well, we 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 had a problem because we wanted that to be a uh, stand in order fentanyl for the shivering, and the state health mm -hmm. department gave us a very hard time. So it's a medical control. So fentanyl is uh, is a problem, but now it's a different. Uh, political structure because we have a different governor. So it's a speculation. It's not what I'm reflecting what um, Remsco, New York City Remsco is saying again as, you know, my uh, little uh, spiel that I did here. But I would speculate to say that that may be a possibility that that, that may happen. Um, How have the command docs been for giving orders for fentanyl? Uh, for what I hear, uh, it's not a problem, and sometimes um, they don't need it because uh, the midazolam is the standard order for the hypothermic uh, therapeutic hypothermia, and sometimes what they already got them to the hospital. Um, they want to use very low doses. They they got five milligrams. 
because they don't want to blunt the neurological uh, part. So when they get into the hospital, they're able to do a good neuro check. So we decided to go with very low doses of... Uh, well, some of, places uh, they're, they're knocking them down completely. So why do they feel they need to do the neurological assessment? Yeah, I don't know. The, the physicians that were involved in it from uh, Mount Sinai and Presbyterian who consulted with us, um, which was in quite a few years of planning where they started first in the hospitals, and uh, Finney and uh, us, along with the Great New York Hospital Association, on a collaborative effort, uh, planned that part of the stage before we implemented it back in July. Um, were very adamant about that they wanted to have that neuro check when the patient came into the hospital. And that's why they wanted to go on much lower doses. Um, and at first, I didn't understand because I thought it was quite a very low dose. And it was going to have problems um, with the shivering. And I was concerned that it was going to have the hypothalamus kick in and that whole counter uh, regulatory process that goes into the body to try to get homeostasis and uh, apparently um, it was explained to me that that's what they wanted. They wanted that critical neuro check upon going into the ED. Hmm. So that's what we wound up with. But that's on a, you know, on a side note. But um, they did, our, pro our proposed protocol is uh, an increase of another nitro dose sublingual. Um, That's and bringing again, it up to five? That would no, bring no, it up no. To it was originally three. Now okay. it's four. Okay. Right. But, um, you know, I, I, again, you know, to tell Tim, you know, I'm part of a protocol committee, and, you know, this was one of the things that came up to study, and I don't know if along the way, uh, when they deliberate, because it's a long process in terms of not being unilateral, where it goes to different committees, and it goes for public notice, then it goes to the state, so that's sort of the um, whole methodology, but I'm not sure if there is any other, or a previ to it, of any other deliberations or any other studies that showed that would kind of influence them, nor was I able really to get a straight answer, to be honest with you, except from what this study is, um, which I think it was, it, did it come out of Duke, if I was, if I remember yes. correctly? From, yeah, the Duke Clinical yeah, Research Institute. Yeah. And, um, you know, so I, I tried to see if there was any other studies, which I didn't come across. But Yeah, uh, I just, uh, before I got on, was going through clinicaltrials.gov, and the only study I found looking at morphine for acute coronary syndromes was injecting it directly into the heart uh, following reperfusion or just before reperfusion which would not uh, in our, really look at yeah. this question. Yeah, it wouldn't be in our realm. Exactly. Well, Tim, yeah. maybe the, the once they implement the New York State Protocol, that's where they'll get the data from, and then the new study will uh, commence from there. Maybe. Um, <laughs> there are probably uh, a lot of EMS organizations tracking data on this. problem is... Uh, the hospital's interpretation of HIPAA and their uh, often refusal to cooperate with EMS in looking at data of patients, even though that is specifically exempted from HIPAA. Right. Well, you meant the mis misinformation of HIPAA. 
Yes. Well, well, you know what? If I can interject, you know, uh, New York is city is pretty. Uh, well, at least from and and this probably, you know, I shouldn't go off on a tangent, but this is one of the things that we were once talking about when we were wondering why the, the Finney, and again, this is my only opinion, why they wanted um, maybe eventually to try to see if they could take over because they were trying to charge the voluntary sectors a million dollars and maybe take over a lot of the telemetry to 911. It is very research-oriented, and they do have very good rapports with a lot of these STEMI-receiving institutions, and they do share a lot of the data. Uh, and they're involved in a big study um, that is collaborative, I think, with London on comparing a lot of these outcomes um, with, um, not specifically with this that I know about, because they don't necessarily reveal a lot of the things, but in terms of um, survival rates with CPR and stuff like that. So it's very research-oriented, and it could be something behind this, too. I mean, it's, it's not far-fetched. That's good. Yeah. That sort of goes, uh, that's I mean, we need it, too. We need it, too. But no, you know, I, not at the sake of somebody, you know, not getting a good standard of care, you know, which I, I, don't, I don't think so, you know. It's interesting in a, in a way, Mark, that you say that because I've always been under the impression and from the people that – I've known. I mean, certainly you have a much more inside track, uh, obviously, but uh, that Sydney was not very big on sharing their data. And as a matter of fact, the early CPR studies were having a big problem because they one of the organizations that they wanted to. As a matter, wait a second. In the white paper itself, Sydney was. Uh, not directly, but indirectly, sort of called out, and the, uh, Fidney and, and several other major cities are not sharing their uh, their data. So you're saying that they are sharing their data? Well, that you're correct. The white paper, yeah, I, you're absolutely correct in that case. But I'm they're involved in something that's on the Fidney website that anybody could go to. And they're involved with the study with London, but I know that they're very research oriented and they're doing a lot of their studies. Where they're going and who they're sharing it with, that I can't answer. I have no idea. But I can tell you that they're very research oriented and they do have a lot of cooperation, a lot of collaborative things with um, a lot of the institutions uh, and a lot of the key players who helped in a lot of, a lot of the main, the main big protocol and one of the pioneers of the hypothermic uh, hypothermia, I'm sorry, I keep reversing it, was here in New York City and the people from Columbia and Presbyterian, New York Presbyterian and from Mount Sinai, uh, two key physicians, um, you know, uh, the guy from EM Crit um, is one of the, uh, Scott Weingart is one of the key people who were, were very instrumental behind doing this whole thing. Hey, Mark. Very interesting. I, I hate to cut you guys short because um, I know we're getting to the, another little realm here of the conversation, but we've got about less than a minute left, so I just want to kind of end on that note, if that's okay with you guys, and, and thank you all for coming on and giving your points of view. I think it, it does go back to, like Tim said earlier, too, is that, you know, as far as like fentanyl and morphine and what we're doing for the patients, we have to keep reassessing the patient no matter what the protocol tells us to do and, and what drugs we're using. That it's important that we keep, you know, reassessing the patients and see if what we're giving is working or having a negative effect on them no matter what their 
complaint is. So um, uh, thanks again for everyone for joining in. Tim, Tim, thanks for popping in. I know you got a late start, uh, but thanks for uh, for joining us. Yeah, that was my fault. I thought you were starting at seven thirty. That's all right. That's all right. Well, every day, every week is seven o'clock. So whenever you, whenever you feel free to jump in, that's that's all right with us. I'd love to have you on here. Love love hearing your point of views. Um, yeah, please come back, uh, Tim, because uh, I get tired of talking with Jim all the time. Exactly. I want to see me drawn on. Well, uh, I'm going to put links, of course, to everybody's blogs and websites below in the show notes. Um, and I'm also going to uh, put links to the studies as well. So if anyone listening can go ahead and check that out. So thanks again, guys, for joining me. And uh, have a great night, everybody. Thanks, Jim. Thank you. Thanks. Have a good night. Well, guys, less than 10 seconds. Uh, thanks again for joining me. Please uh, leave your comments below in the show notes. Let me know what you think about the show and what you felt uh, your, your opinions are, and uh, we'll see you next week.